Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Isaiah chapter 53, the fourth servant song. We'll begin reading Isaiah 53 verse 1, though this um, servant song begins back in uh, 52 verse 13. We'll start a reading at 53 verse 1 and we'll uh, read through the whole chapter. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper In his hand, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We'll read that in connection with um, Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism as um, the Catechism has been making its way through the fundamentals of the Christian faith as they're summarized in the Apostles' Creed. It um, now makes its way to that line in the Creed about Christ's suffering 
and about his crucifixion. So we'll read Lord's Day 15 together responsively, where it asks first in question 37, what do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Congregation at this point in the catechism, it's going through the Apostles' Creed and it's focusing on the Son. The Son who so far we've learned is true and eternal God. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is our Lord and our Savior. He is the Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. And so it's a bit jarring that the next thing we're told about him is that he will suffer. In fact, the only thing really between his birth and death in the creed is this line about his suffering. He will be a man who is acquainted with grief. He will be a man of sorrows. That's what Isaiah tells us. He calls this prophet, priest, and king, son of God and son of David, a man of sorrows. What a name. For the son of God who came, that he would be known as one who suffers. That the entirety of his life, in some sense, could be captured in that line about suffering. But indeed, that's exactly what we find as we come to this fourth servant song. We see five things about the suffering of the Son. We see, first of all, that Christ suffered all his life long. We see, second, that he suffered especially at the end. Third, that he suffered divine judgment. Fourth, he suffered in our place. And fifth, that he suffered to earn for us God's grace. He suffered all his life long, suffered especially at the end. He suffered divine judgment. He suffered in our place, and he suffered to earn for us God's grace. Let's look at me at Isaiah 53 as we consider these basics of the Christian faith, first, that he suffered all his life long. So we see 
um, at the beginning of, of question 37, when it asks, uh, what do you understand by the word suffer? The first thing it tells us is that during his whole life on earth, Christ suffered. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 53, where, where it tells us right from the very beginning that, that the Christ grew up as a tender plant, as a, a root out of dry ground. This is a phrase that we looked at a little bit about a month ago, and we were looking at that passage about Joash and Athaliah, and so there's one sense in which his coming up as a root out of dry ground speaks to the fact that he came from a royal line that had been decimated, that was not as glorious as it once was. But beyond just coming from a royal line that was no longer glorious, uh, this also speaks to the fact that that the very circumstances in which he will be brought up are not glorious. As this Christ, from the line of David that had come almost to nothing, is is born into poverty. Remember how Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2, at the dedication of Jesus in the temple, it tells us that they offered um, two turtle doves. So we get the, the line from the, the 12 days of Christmas about two turtle doves. But it's, it's interesting that in Leviticus chapter 12, it says that at this dedication in the temple, a lamb is supposed to be brought along with a turtle dove. Unless the mother and father cannot afford it. In which case, allowance is made for them to bring just two turtle doves. That's the allowance in the law of Moses that that it makes for the poor. And and that's exactly what is offered at the dedication of Jesus. It's suggesting to us the poverty into which he is born. Much less, Matthew chapter 2 tells us that he would be uh, raised as a, a Nazarene coming from Nazareth, that place of which it is said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He lives the first few years of his childhood on the run as a fugitive from the king who wants to kill him. His own birth announcement back in in Matthew chapter 2, having been stained by blood in that massacre of the infants. Jesus' life from its very beginning is marked by suffering. He is a root out of dry ground. He grew up as a tender plant. Isaiah goes on to tell us that there was nothing about his appearance that, that was glorious. Verse 2, it says he had no form or comeliness. When, when people saw him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. Now, One uh, theologian, Gerard Van Groningen, says of this verse, the servant is completely devoid of any attractive features. Isaiah stresses his appalling appearance. There are absolutely no royal, honorable, majestic features about him. He will be despised and rejected by men. Even his own people to whom he came will not have him. That's the point that John makes in in that prologue in John chapter 1. His own people would not receive him. His own siblings believe that he is out of his mind. The people from his own village will try to kill him and and try to throw him off a cliff. This is a man who will know suffering. A man who is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Literally, a man who knows sorrow. A man who is intimately acquainted 
with suffering. A man, um, E.J. Young says, whose characteristic is found in griefs. The entire life of the servant was filled with griefs, both bodily, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. This is a man who knew suffering. And they say of, of William Cooper, the old hymn writer, that his life was one long accumulation of pain. The, the same could be said of the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And we see that especially at the end of his life, in verses 4 through 8 of this chapter, where it describes the events of Christ's final hours. And we see in uh, the first part of our passage that Christ suffered all his life long. But now we see that he suffered especially at the end. In fact, even that line about Christ being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, was that not especially true in Gethsemane and at the cross? where Luke chapter 22 tells us that he sweat great drops of blood, that his soul was sorrowful even unto death. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that he offered up prayers with vehement cries and tears, with, with loud cries and supplications. He cried out to God. On the cross, he uttered those words of God forsaken. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he shouldered, verse 4, all of our griefs and all of our sorrows. The pain of hell that you and I deserved, he bore. This is what Isaiah tells us. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Meaning the people assumed that all of this must have been because he was under God's curse. Which, of course, he was but not in the way that they assumed. He was not under God's curse for his own sake, but for ours. As he hung on the cross, darkness covered the earth, and he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 5 goes on to say that he was uh, wounded, he was bruised or, or pierced, it goes on to say, that by his stripes, that is, by his, his bloody, lacerated flesh, we are healed. Do you hear how verse 5 speaks of, of the physical suffering that Christ sustained, especially at the end of his life? He was stricken. He was smitten, afflicted, pierced, bruised, Flogged, wounded, his flesh mangled, blood pouring out, his side pierced. Christ knew suffering in body and in soul. As the Lord laid upon him the the iniquity of us all, as as we sang from from, uh, number 265 in Christ alone, where it says, every sin on him was laid. Christ suffered not only physically, but he suffered spiritually as the weight of our sin was placed upon him. He was forced to smell the the stench of our adultery and our gossip and our lies and our back talk and our hatred and our uh, disobedience to parents and our, our bitterness and pride and malice. 
All of these things which though he had witnessed as the friend of sinners, he had never experienced personally because he had not sinned. But now all of those sins were laid upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he suffered the frown of God upon him, which he never had before. And the way that, that, that he suffered in his soul, in a way that we could not imagine, the spotless son became sin. Verses 7 and 8 go on to speak of, of the, the suffering of the, the end of his life in further detail, where it says that he was oppressed and afflicted. This word oppressed is the same word that is used at the beginning of the book of Exodus to describe Israel under their harsh Egyptian taskmasters. Christ, a bit like Moses who leaves the palace of Pharaoh to go down and suffer with his people, Christ too willingly goes and and undergoes that same kind of oppression. That same kind of affliction which led Israel to cry out to God in anguish. And he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, yet he did not open his mouth. He did not defend himself. But he was voluntarily humiliated before Caiaphas and before Pilate, before the whole Sanhedrin, before the crowds that were there. He was taken away by judgment and cut off from the land of the living. This congregation is the suffering that Christ sustained at the end of his life. Which verse 10 makes clear, this is our third point, was the divine judgment of God. We see this also in verse 4 where uh, the people esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and, and afflicted. They supposed that this suffering was the curse of God upon him. And of course, in one sense, they're wrong as they believe that, that God was punishing Christ for some, some sin of his, but in another sense, they're right. The blows that Christ's body sustained were not just the blows of those Roman soldiers and those Jewish scribes and elders who struck him, who, who hit him with, with um, a backhand, with, with, with a fist and with an open hand. They were not just the strokes of, or the, the, the blows of those men, but they were the strokes of divine justice. And those men were merely the human agents by which the wrath of God was being poured out. This, of course, is not to say that they were innocent in the sins that they committed. But as with uh, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery, God superintended their evil to bring good. Acts chapter 2 says, Though lawless hands crucified him and put him to death, though though, um, uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate, Acts 4 will say, all of those men were guilty in what they did, yet all of it was according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. So that verse 10 is able to say it was the Lord who crushed him or bruised him. You see that in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord To bruise him. This is not to say that the father took some sadistic pleasure in the suffering of his son, but it is to say that it was according to the the plan and will of God. It it, uh, pleased and that it it fulfilled the eternal plan where it was necessary for Christ to die. As in his death, the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. 
John Stott put it this way in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, God must um, satisfy himself responding to the realities of human rebellion in a way that is consonant with his character. Thus, it would be impossible for us sinners to remain eternally the object of his holy love since he cannot both punish and pardon us at the same time. Hence, the only way for God's holy love to be satisfied is for his holiness, his wrath, to be directed in judgment upon his appointed substitute in order that his love may be directed toward us in forgiveness. The substitute bears the penalty that we sinners may receive the pardon. Christ, the eternal Son of God, bears the wrath of God Almighty in His suffering and death on the cross. As we see in question 39 where it says that He shoulders the curse that should have been mine and is accursed by God. Mercy Sproul famously took that that, um, Numbers chapter 6, blessing, the Lord bless you and keep, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and, and sort of turns it inside out or upside down and shows that in order for all of those things to be true of us, the opposite had to be true of the Son. That God's frown was upon him, that darkness and curse were upon him. As we sang it in Christ alone, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Christ suffered divine judgment, which is even suggested by the word um, transgression or transgressors. It appears, I think, four times in this passage. That's a, a legal term. Meaning that the breaking or, or transgressing of a law. God has said, thou shalt not. We have said, we shall. He has said, you shall. We have said, we shall not. And so we cross the line. We, we break the law. That's the language that's used four times in this passage. Transgressors. Transgression. A legal term, speaking of the breaking of a law. And, and so, um, because the law has been broken, there must be legal punishment. And so he is bruised. He is chastised. He is crushed as the legal demands for the breaking of that law are fulfilled. This is what Christ suffered. And yet what Isaiah is at pains to make clear to us is that this legal punishment that Christ sustains is substitutionary. He's suffering as a substitute. These transgressions for which he suffers are not his own. But he suffered in our place. He suffered all his life long. He suffered especially at the end. He suffered divine judgment. But this suffering was not for his own sin. It was for ours. He suffered in our place. Verse 4, do you notice how how it speaks of our griefs, our sorrows? Verse 5, our transgressions, our iniquities. Verse 6, the iniquity of us all. Verse 8 says, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Verse 11, he bears the iniquity of the many, making intercession Verse 12, for the transgressors and bearing the sins of many. No less than nine times in nine verses, Isaiah makes clear he was suffering as a substitute. Our griefs, 
Our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions, yet his suffering. Tim Chester says, each time the crime is ours and yet the suffering is his. Or Luther, um, in uh, another commentary on these these, uh, pronouns that we find in this passage, we we heard him say something about that on Christmas. Again, he, he says that we need to take these words, our and us, in Isaiah 53, and, and for us, and write them in gold. Luther says, he who does not believe those words, our, us, and for us, is not a Christian. It is these possessive pronouns that make this chapter perhaps the high point of all of Old Testament revelation. He didn't just suffer, but his suffering was for us. It was for our sins. And yet it was his suffering. Even though he was innocent, verse 9, it says he, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Even though no deceit was found in his mouth, he hadn't committed any violence, he hadn't broken any one of, of, of the laws in either the first or second table of the Ten Commandments, yet he suffers as the sinner. In verses 11 and 12, we see that language of, of bearing our sins. And in verse 11, it, it says that um, he shall bear their iniquities. End of verse 12, and he bore the sin of many. That language is, is borrowed from Leviticus chapter 16 of the Day of Atonement. Where the scapegoat on whom all of, of the sins of Israel were placed bore them as he carried them off into the wilderness, never again to return. And we see that um, sacrificial language and imagery in verse 7. That he is the innocent Lamb of God who bears our sins as the perfect sacrifice. He is the one, question 38, who though innocent is condemned by an earthly judge, Pilate, who, who several times in the gospel accounts declares Christ to be innocent and says he has not sinned. His wife even has a dream to that same effect that, that he is innocent and we must have nothing to do with this man. Several times by an earthly judge, he is declared innocent. And yet he still suffers so that we might be freed from the severe judgment of God that was to fall upon us. Isaiah is making the point, and the gospel writers are making the point in those interactions with Pilate or, or in their whole description of, of Christ's entire earthly ministry, they're making the point that he did not sin. And so his suffering is in our place. And Isaiah chapter 53 is is, um, uh, prompting us to to ask and answer the question, do you believe that? That his suffering was in your place. Do you own those sins and iniquities and transgression that this chapter speaks of as yours? And do you confess before God that you deserve all of the hell that Christ bore for you? Luther is right. If you don't, then this passage is not for you good news. But if you own those sins and confess them before God and look to Christ as your Savior, as we we heard on Christmas, your wonderful counselor, your Prince of Peace, then this passage is for you the best of news. Which leads then to the last thing that we want to consider 
that Christ suffered not only in our place, but he suffered to earn for us God's grace. In other words, Christ not only bears our sins to, to bring us back up to neutral, so to speak, before God, but, but the righteous one who takes our sins also grants to us his active obedience. He gives us his righteousness as a gift so that we who were sinners might be reckoned in God's sight not just as neutral, but as positively righteous. Catechism says, and I think it's question 61, is, or 60, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. We are reckoned in the sight of God. We are reckoned in the sight of heaven as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Christ suffers to earn for us God's grace. The way question 37 puts it is to gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. In taking the curse, question 39, he imparts to us the blessings of salvation. He takes the covenant curse that Adam earned for us, namely death, that we might receive the covenant blessing of fellowship with God in life eternal. His grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Now, verse 11, he justifies the many. And notice that God calls him my righteous one. By bearing our iniquities, he justifies us and makes us the righteous ones. And verse 5 says that he gives us peace. The peace with God, and we once we're at enmity with. And flowing from that, peace of conscience as our sins have been paid for, inner peace as there is no need for us now to fear God as judge. But the Prince of Peace of Isaiah 9 has made us right with God by his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He suffers in our place and he takes our sins on himself so that we might receive his righteousness. So we might be justified and have peace. Jesus gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. Luther called that the great exchange. That's what this passage is detailing for us. You could say it's, it's the Old Testament version of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Isaiah is, is painting this picture for us. He's uh, painting this picture for the Old Testament saints to make them long for the Christ to come. To make them long for this servant who was promised several hundred years before. To make them long for him so that by looking ahead in, in the prophetic hope to his stripes in faith, looking ahead to those stripes of verse 5, they might be healed and have peace. Luther said, if you want to be healed, do not look at yourself, but fix your gaze on Christ. In the suffering one of Isaiah 53, we are seeing God's solution to man's greatest plight. We are seeing God's solution to, to the plight that was described in those first couple Lord's days of the catechism about our misery and our sin and our guilt. 
that we are estranged from God because of our sin and rebellion against him, both in our federal head, Adam, but also in our actual sins. And someone needs to pay for those sins. God provides his very own son to do just that. To suffer his whole life long in one long accumulation of pain that is his, his earthly humiliation. And then at the end of his life to sustain in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Pleasing God by being crushed. So that the curse of God which lay upon you and upon me, the curse of death, might be lifted from us and we might have life. We might have peace, that same peace of which we heard this morning from Psalm 4, that we might have even the the light of God's countenance, the light of his face to shine upon us. That's what Christ has accomplished for us in this suffering of Isaiah 53. I just want to give you just a few um, applications from this. First, if if you do not believe in Jesus, the, the main application of Isaiah 53 is repent and believe the gospel. Behold this one who suffered for our sake so that we might be spared that eternal suffering that we rightly deserve. Consider a passage like Acts chapter 8 where the Ethiopian eunuch is, is uh, sitting in his chariot and he's reading this very passage. And he asks Philip, who, who is this speaking of? It says that Philip comes and he preaches to him Jesus and he shows him from this passage how he must repent of his sins and believe in Christ. So do you see the love of God in this passage that he would give his only son? That Christ would willingly be led like a sheep to the slaughter so that we might be justified. But you see also not just the love of God, but also the justice of God, that sin must be punished. That he hates it so much that he would crush his only son. And the only way for you not to be crushed is if you are among the many of verse 11, the the my people in verse 8. God's people. Christ's people. Those who believe in him. This passage demands of us a response of faith and repentance. It it screams, look to Christ, the suffering servant who gains for us peace with God. And then second, once once you have uh, looked to Christ and beheld him with the eyes of faith, the, the second thing that this passage calls us to do is to rejoice in what God has done for us. A passage like this has not rightly been understood if it does not lead us to worship. If it does not lead us to thanksgiving. If it does not move us to to see what we deserve and and then see what God has done and rejoice. Thomas Hooker said, this is our wisdom and comfort. We, We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered. That God hath made himself the sin of men and that men are the righteousness of God. That's the point of this passage. And it's meant to make our hearts sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's meant to make our hearts rejoice. 
And I would suggest to you that part of, of that um, response of, of rejoicing, part of our, our rejoicing in response to what God has done for us is, is also then to seek to live in grateful obedience before him. As we'll sing in just a moment in our song of response, to think not of sin but lightly, or suppose that evil is not great, but here to view its nature rightly, here its guilt to estimate. To see at the cross of Christ in this passage the cost of the sins that we commit and to be moved to greater and greater hatred for them. Those secret sins that we commit, those sins that we indulge, those words of gossip that we speak, those sinful thoughts of bitterness that we harbor, to see in this passage the cost for those sins and to be moved to holy hatred for them. To see also the love and grace of God in Christ. And be moved by that, not to keep committing those same old sins, but to be moved by his spirit to live a life of gratitude. This congregation is to be our response to what God has done, to to repent and believe the gospel and rejoice in what he has done, which includes hating our sin and seeking to live for him. And one last um, application from this passage, and this is looking ahead a little bit, um, to Lord's Day 16 and question 44 especially. But as you come here this afternoon, perhaps with your own burdens and, and you think about your own suffering, whatever it is that you might be going through, the Spirit of God wants us to see in this passage that Christ, who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, knows our suffering. As we'll see in in question 44 next week, that during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, we are assured by this, that Christ our Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Do you see in this passage, or do you hear in those words of question answer 44, that you have a companion in your suffering? that you have a sympathetic Savior, that in the midst of whatever it is that you may be going through, there is not one, uh, one core that, that can strike in, in your, um, your sinful and suffering humanity that does not strike a sympathetic chord with Christ in his exalted humanity because he is a priest who has become like us and he knows the suffering that we endure. Who, in fact, in this passage has suffered far, far greater than any one of us. And by that suffering has, has assured that one day our suffering will cease. Because he bore the hell that you and I deserve. You see, the comfort of our suffering Savior, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, look to Christ. Sinners, saints, and sufferers look to Christ and see how he bore in this passage the curse that we deserve. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, the Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, the eternal Son of God, our Lord, who yet took on our flesh so that that flesh might be marred beyond human semblance. 
that he might become acquainted with grief his whole life long so that we could be spared the grief and sorrow of eternal hell as we look to him in faith. Lord, we pray that every one of us would, and that having done that, you would make us rejoice and live lives of gratitude before you where we hate our sin and where we love your son. We pray, Father, that by your spirit we would be moved having, having considered this, this um, high point in biblical revelation here in Isaiah 53, that having considered it, that, that you would um, grant to us that expulsive power of a new and greater affection, that we would be moved to greater and greater love for Christ, having beheld him this afternoon, so that we might leave here uh, less and less having a taste for those sins which we so often delight in. Help us, Lord, to hate them more and more as we grow more and more in love for Christ, beholding him each and every Lord's day in his word, beholding what he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection, and beholding our sympathetic Savior, exalted now, ascended into heaven. I pray that you be honored now in the praise that we give. In Jesus' name, amen.